you remember the play Macbeth, there were three witches that go and prophesy to Macbeth that he's, one day he's going to be the king of Scotland. So encouraged by this and by his wife's goading, Macbeth goes and kills the king, and he becomes the new king. And as soon as this happens, all goes south pretty quickly. The power is gained through murder, and he has to keep it by murder. It's all coming unraveled. A civil war starts. His wife, through guilt, kills herself. And they tell Macbeth that his wife has already died. And he says, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools, the way to dusty death, out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage. And then it's heard no more. It's a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. What's the point? He had taken power, he had gotten all that he wanted, and he gives this speech. It's meaningless. What's the point? fret and fret, but it's just tomorrow, one day after another, after another, after another, then we die, and, and that's it. What's the point? You work, and you work, and you work, what's it mean? Even if you get it all, even if you become king, what do you, what do you gain? Because just like everybody else, you die. Tomorrow, and tomorrow, and tomorrow, creeps in the petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. That's a pretty famous speech in, in Shakespeare because it hits home with people. There's truth in those words, even if we don't like to admit it and even if we don't like to think of it. What's the point? I read online somewhere that uh, someone asked a question, what's the point of working your whole life if you don't get to enjoy it? And he goes on and he says, I work all week, I come home, I'm tired, and then I can't do, don't have enough money to do anything. All I can do is pay my bills. And say, so am I supposed to be, keep doing this the rest of my life? Just work and work and work to pay my bills. And then that's it. Then I die. Well, people are saying, well, don't get pessimistic. You, know, you can work for personal meaning. And some people say, well, if you didn't work, you'd be bored and, and you'd, you'd want to do something. And somebody said, well, you work for the good of society. Okay, well, what does working for society do? The place was here before I got here, and it'll be here after I'm gone. Society was here before I was along, and society will be here when I'm dead. You can get bored at work as easy as you can at home. Meaning? We get our, our meaning from a job. Are you supposed to take your meaning from a job that you don't like and you can't stand? Looking at the clock, counting down the seconds until you get to go home, and then you get to wake up and you do it all over again? What's the point? Let's turn to Ecclesiastes, uh, chapter number 1. Ecclesiastes, chapter number 1. We'll start reading in verse number 1. words of the preacher, 
son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit hath a man of all his labor which he taketh under the sun? One generation passeth away, and another generation cometh, but the earth abideth forever. The sun also rises, and the sun also goeth down, and hasteth to its place where he arose. The wind goeth toward the south, and turneth about unto the north. It whirleth about continually, and the wind returneth again according to his circuits. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full unto the place from whence the rivers come. Thither they return again. All things are full of labor. Man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. The thing that hath been is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done. There is no new thing under the sun. Is there anything whereof it may be said, See, this is new. It's already been of old time, which was before us. There is no remembrance of former things. Neither shall there be any remembrance of things that are to come, but those that shall come after. What is it that we're reading here? This is a strange little book, Ecclesiastes. Um, the word is one of those words where it's the Greek form of the Hebrew word kind of deals um, rather than an English translated word. Ecclesiastes is the Greek form of the Hebrew word ekklesia. And you probably know what that is. That's the New Testament word where we get the church. It's an assembly of people. And so what we have are the words of a guy who's standing in the assembly preaching. The words of the preacher. And right out, right out of the bat, we say, here are the words of the preacher. And immediately, we're thrust into a group of people waiting for something to happen. So Ecclesiastes, um, we think of a man, a preacher. Where's the preacher? What's he do? He stands before a congregation of people. So you and I, as we open this book, we're in the congregation waiting for something to happen. Well, suddenly a man walks out to address us. It's not the guy apparently we've been waiting for, but he's the MC. He's getting ready. He's getting us ready to hear the guy that's coming. The words of the preacher, the son of David, the king of Jerusalem. So he's a narrator. He's a narrator. And he's one of two main characters in this book. You've got the narrator um, and then the preacher. The narrator, like a good narrator, you don't notice him much. You don't see him, you don't notice him much. And unless you're paying real close attention, you don't even know that he's there. You don't realize that, oh yeah, he's talking about the preacher. He's not the preacher. And then you get down to verse number 12, he says, I the preacher. So it shifts from someone talking about the preacher and saying what the preacher believes to the preacher actually preaching. So you got the narrator who's here at the very beginning and then he's at the very end. He introduces us to the preacher and what the preacher is all about, and he comes back to sum it all up at the end. And I think what I read tonight was the narrator telling us a little bit about the preacher and a little bit about what his message is. He, lay, he introduces us. 
to this man. I think the preacher is Solomon. I don't know whether son of David, king in Jerusalem, uh, would have been because Rehoboam was the last son of David that was king in Jerusalem before uh, before the split. Um, and then um, after that, there weren't too many good kings, but it could have been it could have been um, any number of people. But I think it's Solomon. And so here we have the narrator coming out. He says the words of the preacher. Maybe you've gone to a church or or something like that, and you've never been before, and and you've wanted to hear preachers speak that you've never heard before. And you're listening to him, and you're trying to kind of figure him out. You're, you, you know, you know if you know a preacher, you're kind, of, and you know what he believes, and you know what he stands for. You can, you can listen to him, and not uh, undiscerningly, but you can listen to him and say, "Well, I, I trust this man." But if you don't know somebody, um, you're kind of trying to figure out what they're all about, what's going on, what's this preacher saying, what are we to make of him? Well, this. This is a good critical way to think about these things. And, and this preacher comes out with both guns blazing. He's, he's ultimately forcing us to stop and say, what in the world is he saying? He just doesn't come right out and tell us the point. Sometimes uh, they'll say that, you know, if you're going to give a speech or, or a sermon, tell the people what you're going to say and, and then tell them, and then tell them what you said, you know, just keep repeating, repeating. Well, the preacher in Ecclesiastes doesn't do that. He tells the truth, and he goes on to another hard truth, and another hard truth, and, and after a while you get kind of dizzy. He's, he's beating you over the head so bluntly with this plain, hard, bold truth. And then he does it again. And then he does it a few more times. It's very... It's very disorienting in some regards the first time you read it because you just you just don't know which way to turn. I read that and you think, well, I thought this was, I thought the Bible was supposed to be uplifting and, and, and strengthening. This this guy sounds like he's had he woke up on the wrong side of the bed. Well, you're going to have to consider what the preacher is saying and wrestle with what he's putting forth because that's how he wants you to think about life. He's not going to pull any punches in this book. But he's going to tell you exactly the way life is. But he's not a cynic. He's not depressed. He didn't get up on the wrong side of the bed. He's given you a, a clear view of what life is really like because you and I have the tendency to want to pretend that life is something that it's not. We want to pretend that if we work hard, everything will work out, that, that life is going to be everything we want it to be, that we can get satisfaction from our jobs and, and we can get satisfaction from the things in this life. And, and if we buy the new thing, that, that'll bless us and, and, and give us satisfaction. Or if we, if we join in the next new thing, then that'll give us satisfaction. But the preacher wants us to stop and just look around what this world is and re reorient us 
to what is important, what truly satisfies, what truly will give us joy. And to kind of give away, give away the book at the beginning, that's what this will ultimately do for us. In a kind of weird way, it will, make, it will give us joy if, if, we come, if we look at this world in the light of Christ. Because what he's going to do is he's going to take away any illusion whatsoever that you can find satisfaction under the sun without Christ. And he's going to go slow and methodically and just kind of um, kick the stool out from underneath us. He's going to uh, take the air out of the tires of the, the car of this world that we think that we can uh, just drive down and, and, and have joy and happiness. Well, typically a narrator would come out and introduce the person who's about to speak and, and tell you a little bit about the person and, and tell you where they're coming from and so forth. First time... I was a pastor of a church that held a, a fellowship meeting or a Bible conference. The thought never occurred to me that the people didn't know who the preacher was, especially since we'd been talking about it for months and, and all that kind of thing. I, I assumed that they knew who uh, we were having and who the person was. And um, I guess that was a flawed assumption because they said, well, we didn't even really know who he was or where he, where he came from. And so that was probably... Uh, my fault, and I probably deserved the the fussing that I that I heard. But I didn't introduce the man. He just got up and started preaching, and so it took him a little while to say, "Okay, I wonder where this guy's." Um, you know, I can't remember where this guy's from, and and that kind of thing. Well, that's kind of what we get here. Just right out of the gate, vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. All is vanity. Imagine going to a. Imagine going to a church and you walk in and you sit down the first time you're there and, and you look around and the preacher just got some vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And then it just keeps going from there. You'd say, wow, where, what's going on? He says, he doesn't even tell us his name. And we, like I said, I think it's Solomon, but it might not have been Solomon. He doesn't even tell us who it is. He just says, here's the king. And this is what he says. What's the point? We don't even know if he's a good king or a bad king. Just, here's the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. So the narrator comes out on the stage to a group of people who really don't know what's going on. They really don't know why they've gathered. And he abruptly says, ladies and gentlemen, the words of the king, vanity of vanities. That's a way to start. That's the way to start is the, the, the sermon. That's the way to get people's attention. I looked at um, the best uh, opening lines in novels. Uh, Call Me Ishmael. That was one of them from Moby Dick. Um, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Dickens. Or uh, 1984. It was a bright cold day in April and the clocks were striking 13. I like that one because that knocks you off balance right off. Right off the bat. Well, opening lines and introductions aren't everything, but sometimes they hook you right from the very start, from the very opening words, and they can arrest your attention, shock your sensibilities, compel you to find out what in the world is this guy going to talk about? And that's what he does here. Vanity of vanity, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. 
What profit hath a man of all of his labor which he's taken under the sun? So whenever you see a repeated word, that's a way that you can put it in bold letters and underline it, italics, a couple exclamation points. That's what he's doing here. And he does it twice. Vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities. It's all vanity. Right out of the gate. And this is going to be a theme that you're going to keep coming back to throughout the book. And it's what the narrator sums it up with. So this is, is bracketed. The narrator begins with this theme and he ends with it. So it's important to, to consider that everything is vanity under the sun. So he's going to keep coming back. The pre, this is sort of summarizing the preacher's uh, whole point. In, in this book, or one of the big points, big questions. So what is he talking about vanity? It's not uh, somebody looking in the mirror, looking, combing their hair, and, and seeing how beautiful they think they are. It's, it's uh, a vapor. It's like a breath. Here one second, gone the next. Or it's kind of like life is just hard. Life is confusing. Life sometimes is bizarre, sometimes incomprehensible to us. We just don't understand. Sometimes I'll look and see what's going on in the so-called news, and, and you, just, you just have to shake your head. I don't even understand. I don't even understand this world. This world is It's crazy. It's incomprehensible. It's just bizarre. It's confusing. And it's kind of like the word vanity. It's hard to grab a hold of exactly what's going on with it because there are several different meanings to the word vanity and, and the preacher uses it in different ways throughout. It's just, it's here and it's gone. You just It's hard to grab a hold of. Everything that you do is just, it's frustrating. It's It's like trying to, it's like trying to bottle up fog from down off the Elk River and, and save it for later. It's just, it's here, then it's gone. It's bewildering. Everything. Everything is like that, he says. Then the theme of this section is, ba- he asks us a question. What profit hath a man of all of his labor which he taketh under the sun? And to answer this question, will prove the point of the vanity of life. What prop, what's the point? What profit does a man get in all of his work and all of his labor? Leland Reichland said that Ecclesiastes captures the futility and the frustration of a fallen world. It's honest about the drudgery of work, the injustice of government, the dissatisfaction of foolish pleasure, the mind-numbing tedium of everyday life. It's a treadmill of existence. He said... Think of Ecclesiastes as the only book of the Bible written on Monday morning. I kind of like that. Here we go again. What profit hath a man in all of his work? Like the quote you probably heard attributed to a sanitation worker. I go to work to dig the ditch, to make the money, to buy the food, to gain the strength, to go back to work and to dig the ditch. Over and over and over. 
the merry-go-round of life. I heard one guy say it shouldn't be called a merry-go-round, it should be called a frustration-go-round. Because <laughs> that's the way life is most of the time. A man labors his whole life, and then what's he have? The sun rises and the sun sets, just like it always does, just like it always has, and just like it always will. One generation comes and another generation goes. People come and they live their life and then they die. And they're all doing the same work on the same earth under the same sun. The same sun rose on Abraham as it did on Charles Spurgeon. Abraham Lincoln did his work on the same earth as Alexander the Great. This world just keeps on spinning. The wind keeps on blowing. The Gulf Stream blows like it always has. No matter who's the richest man in the world, no matter who's the best country in the world, no matter what the latest technology is, the wind blows and it goes in its circuit and it just keeps on blowing. You ever stop and and watch a bunch of ants working and then you just kind of think, well, these ants have been working here this whole time. I hadn't even paid any attention, but they've got... You know, they're building and they're, they're home, getting their food and doing all this kind of stuff. And, and, and life is just going on all around them. Well, that's kind of the, the feel of this here. People build and they create and they work all their lives. But the water still flows down the mountain into the river and out to the sea. And the sea never fills up. Because it evaporates and then it goes and it rains and the goes down the mountain, into the creek, out the river, down to the Gulf of Mexico or the ocean, and never gets any higher. Just on and on. David Gibson pointed out that if the world spins and spins and spins, it's never making any progress, is it? The sun rises and it sets and it does it again. The waters flow down into the sea, but it's never full. And here we are on this earth thinking that we're making progress. That, we're, that, that what we're doing is progressing. You know, the progressives, that's what they say, we're making progress. Uh, we're making progress in the future and progress in society. Well, the preacher says otherwise. Because the world just keeps on spinning. The sun rises and sets. And what profit does a man have in his labor? You ever seen a uh, time-lapse video where they take a, a video of something and then over a very long period of time and then they speed it up to where you can watch a seed grow up into a plant in just a matter of seconds? Or I've seen one where they, they did a time-lapse video over a whole year in this remote place where so you can see all the seasons in about 30 seconds. Um, saw another one where they did a time lapse of a, a guy who didn't shave for a year. And so he starts out in just, I think, about three minutes. You see him going from being slick-faced to having the beard down uh, to his rib cage. And, and Well, imagine one of those time lapse videos. Only we set the camera up on the moon. And we watch the earth. You know what we'd see? We'd see it spinning. We'd see clouds and we'd see the wind blowing the clouds along. But if we could watch that video for a thousand years, 
You know what we'd see much different? Nothing. Nothing would look much different from outer space. From that big picture perspective, the earth would look the same now as it did 5,000 years ago. All things are full of labor, and man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. So we can't say that nothing has any profit. There's some people who have done great things. Well, perhaps, but are they, are they remembered? One generation passeth away, another generation comes, but the earth abideth forever. There is no remembrance of former things, neither shall there be any remembrance of the things which are to come or those that shall come after. So, oh, what about the famous people? What about Beethoven? Well, do we really know who Beethoven was or do we know his, know his music? We know his music, we know his name, but how many of us really know anything about the man? Everything, full of work. You can't even describe all the work that we have to do. All things are full of labor. So he says, what profit has a man of all of his labor? Then he says, all things are full of labor in verse 8. And man can't even utter it. You can't even describe all the work that you have to do during the day. You cook the food, you wash the dishes, you put the dishes up to get ready for the next time you cook the food, and then you wash the dishes and you dry them and you put them up. You wash the clothes, you fold the clothes, you put the clothes away, you wear the clothes, you wash the clothes, you fold the clothes, you put the clothes away. You sweep the floor, then someone comes in and then dirties the floor, then you sweep the floor and then someone dirties the floor over and over and over. Anybody, any mom that's had toddlers in the house knows what that's like. You go in and you clean the room and you turn around, and then 10 seconds later, there they are behind you undoing everything that you've cleaned. You put all the toys in a box, you walk into the next room, all the toys are in the floor, and they're not playing with the toys anymore. (laughs) Work. All things are full of labor. And you think, what's the point? What's the point? I I do this, and then I just going to have to do it again in a minute anyway. I study the text, I show up to church, I preach the message. As soon as the church is over, I'm thinking about the next sermon. It doesn't matter what I'm feeling or what's going on or who shows up to church. If anybody shows up to church, the next Sunday's coming. Whether I'm ready or not, Sunday's coming. All things are full of labor. And you can think, well, what's the point? What's the point? Then you work and you work and you work. And you get, you save, and you get some money, and you buy something that you've been wanting, and you're not satisfied with it. Or you get, you get it, and you're happy with it for a few months, then you have to upgrade it, or you have to add some new features, or you buy a new car, and then, then you have to buy new tires, and then you have to buy new brakes, and then it's not as satisfying as it was just a few months before. We work and the stuff won't satisfy us. Even the things that we have, like food and clothing, doesn't bring lasting satisfaction. We enjoy novelty, don't we? We want novelty. But then we get bored with the novelty. 
Somebody, you might say, oh, I'm bored. I'm going to get on Facebook. And you start scrolling and scrolling. Oh, there's something new. There's something new. There's something new. Then you scroll a little bit further and say, well, I've already seen that. I've already seen that. And then you, you might refresh it again and say, oh, well, there's something new. There's something new. But what are you, you're doing the same thing, aren't you? We want novelty, but then we get bored with the newness. And then you say, well, this is boring. I'm going to do something else. We want something new. The thing that hath been is that which shall be, and the thing which is done is that which shall be done. And there is no new thing under the sun, in verse 9. Even when we have new things, these new things have already been done before. It's like the saying, those who, um, those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it, and those who do know history are doomed to watch everybody else repeat it. They just keep, keep happening over and over. Things that have been shall be again. Is there anything new? One generation comes along and discovers things that were already discovered before. Then they commit the mistakes that previous generations made because they don't remember what the previous generations have done. We fought communism for how many? 60 years in the 20th century. The fall of the Russian, the Soviet Union, and then now we just invite the communists in <laughs> to take over our country. We just we don't remember. We don't remember what the previous generations do, and we just repeat the same mistakes over and over. We think there's something new, but then there's nothing new. Oh, what about science? These new discoveries. There was a new method to determine whether a woman was pregnant. It was discovered in 1926, and what they did was they test the woman's urine. Pregnancy test. Archaeologists discovered that the ancient Egyptians were using a technique with barley and wheat to determine not only if a woman was pregnant, but if she's going to have a boy or a girl. 3,000 years ago, the ancient Egyptians had discovered that they could tell with a urine test if she was pregnant or if she's going to have a boy or a girl. And then whenever they found that, the scientists went back and, and said, oh yeah, well that's right. That is true. A Chalcedonian living in Alexandria, Egypt describes in his anatomy the ovaries in the female body and these thin tubes that run to, from them to the womb. 2,000 years later in 1561, Gabrielle Filippio discovered the tubes, and in recognition of his discovery, they called them the fallopian tubes. But they had already been discovered 2,000 years before. But they gave him the credit because we had learned it and we had forgotten it. We forget what was already learned, then we relearn what was already there and over and over and over and over. Even when something new does happen, how long does the newness last? like landing on the moon. I heard one guy say, yeah, you can go to the moon, but what are you going to do when you get there? <laughs> he said, there's nothing to do up there, but just look around and come back. We did that, and then now what is it? Well, now the moon is going to be a base, and we're going to try to go to Mars. And then what would happen if we ever made it to Mars? Well, we're, well that wouldn't be fun. We'll have to go somewhere else. Is there anything whereof it may be said, see, this is new. It's already been of old, which was before. 
There's no remembrance of former things, neither shall there be remembrance of things that are to come with those that shall come after. The inventions and the work of tomorrow, future and progress, is going to be forgotten by those who are not yet born. Those who will live their lives and do their things, and then they'll die and they'll be forgotten by the generation that comes after He's already saying there's no remembrance of the things of the past. There won't be any remembrance of the things now with the people who are yet to come. And then they're going to forget. They're going to do their thing and they're, they're going to forget. And the world will keep on spinning. The wind will keep on blowing in the circuits. The water will keep on running down the mountains into the stream and out into the ocean. It'll never get full. Men will keep on working. Men will... And it's not progress. The argument is that history is going to look back and ask us how we handle things. You hear that all the time. They'll say history will look back on us and, and smile or history will look back on us and, and condemn us. Well, that's a silly thing to consider because if history looks back on us at all, what's it going to remember? You look back on do you ever look back in 1400 and think about what they did in Europe or Africa or China in the 1400s? Do you look back and pass judgment? No. Except for a few events in history, the past is largely forgotten. Everything is passing. Nothing lasts under this sun. And he's saying the work that you do it's not going to have lasting significance. I read a story one time of a guy that in the height of the, um, or in the, in the 90s, when CDs were the big thing, everybody was buying all their music on CDs. Well, he went and bought a factory to make CDs and make CD cases. And after he got the, the company rolling, they came out with the MP3s. And so he, was, he, he bought this company right at the peak of CDs, and then as soon as he starts trying to sell them, people start going to digital, and they, the CD declines. And I think this year or last year, more LP records, vinyl records, were sold than CDs for the first time since the 80s. But the, those, those things are coming back, but everything is changing. There's nothing lasting. And we spend our lives trying to change that. We want to act like it's not so. We can outwork and out-hustle, out-manipulate vanity. We think we can change the weather and keep the winds from blowing in its circuits and keep the water from running into the rivers and the sea by going green. And doing all these other things. We can change the weather. We can change the atmosphere. We can, we can change the circuits. The seasons will, will, will change. Well, this is just depressing, isn't it? <laughs> well, thanks for the uplifting sermon on Wednesday night. Solomon, Solomon, this is just the beginning. But what the narrator is doing is shocking us. You know what you don't read of in these first 11 verses? You don't read anything about God. It's just... Both barrels blazing right out of the gate. What's the point? 
And you might start thinking, well, yeah, that's that feels right when you look around at everything. Well, Beric said poetry is what we've got here in this book. And it's called defeated expectation. It's a it's a poetic device intended to jar our interest. Here we got a book in the Bible that's talking about the purpose of life. We haven't heard anything about God yet. Here's a preacher. A preacher's come in, hasn't said the first thing about God, salvation, eternal life. He's just looking around and saying, what's the point? So he's knocked us off balance right off the bat. What's, what's this guy getting at? What he's doing is looking at life as it truly is. There's no sugar coating it. There's no Joe Olstein, your best life now. There's no every day's a Friday. There's no um, you're going to get everything that you want. You're going to be healthy and wealthy and, and uh, free of sickness and, and all things are going to turn up roses for you. No, what he says, he asks that question. What profit is there in the toil and the labor under the sun? Well, the book doesn't give us much to go on from the start, but um, we can cheat a little bit. We can read the end and find out what kind of man the preacher is. We don't know at the beginning what kind of man he is. And we don't even know who the narrator is. We know the divine author. We know that Ecclesiastes is a Christian book because the Old Testament testifies and points to Jesus Christ, and this book is no different. And what he's setting up here is not lament and sorrow and cynicism. Because at the very end, so let's cheat and let's go to the end of the book. Chapter 12, verse number 9. Says, and moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge, yea, he gave good heed and sought out and set in order many proverbs. The preacher sought to find acceptable words. That which was written was upright, even words of truth. Here were upright words, acceptable words, good words, wise words. Preacher's not crazy. The preacher hasn't lost his mind. The preacher's wise. The preacher's trying to tell us good things, acceptable things, wise things. So what's he doing here? Well, there's variety here that we find. Even if we just step back for a second. Everything happens. The earth keeps on spinning. The sun goes down and it comes back up and it goes back to where it was and, and just a repetition and, and everything that has been will be and, and all that. Genesis 8.22 says, While the earth remain in seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. As part as the goodness of the covenant with Noah 
God said, this earth is going to keep on going. You're going to have summer and winter and springtime and harvest. My mercies are new every morning. You're going to have variety. You're going to have different times and different seasons. God made the earth. He made men to rejoice in him. God is not the killjoy. God wants us to be happy, but in a fallen world, in a fallen world, without God, this is what you have. That's what the preacher is laying out for you. This is what the world looks, this is what the world is. And if you look at it without God, this is what you'll find. Vanity. Vanity and vexation of spirit. Romans chapter number 8 tells us why the world is like that. In verse 20, it says, For the creature, the creation was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who had subjected the same in hope, because the creature itself shall also be delivered from the bondage of corruption to the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. We've been made subject to vanity through sin. And we, when we live under the sun and look at life without God, without putting things in the right perspective, we'll say, well, what's the point? Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow and creeps this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. It just keeps on going and keeps on going until we die. And then what? What good is it? That's the way you look at life without God. Jesus, I think, pointing to this, said what? To a prophet, a man, if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul. What profit hath a man of his labor which he's taken under the sun? Without God, nothing. There's no point. Because you're going to die. And this world's going to keep on spinning. That's the, the sad despair of an atheistic world. Not that you find joy and happiness in this thing. But you find it in Christ. You can look at the sun rising and setting every day and say, thank God for his faithfulness. His mercies are new every morning. And you say, what profit hath a man with all of his labor which he takes under the sun? Well, if, if you're working for that satisfaction, well, you're never going to get it. But if you're living for God, what profit has it? Well, has eternal profit. Your work is the work that God has called you to do. The repetition of the day is a sign of God's faithfulness to you. The, the vanity of life and the confusion of life is, is something we can just go to the Lord and, and either in, in prayer or, or laugh about it at the absurdity of, of just the way how ridiculous people are sometimes. But it sort of it puts us in perspective. What are we living for? Because if we live for everything under the sun, and if we try to find our happiness in things under the sun, if we try to find our happiness in what we do and what we can get, we're just going to get on that hamster wheel 
and you're going to get in the car and you're going to go to work and you're going to do your work and you're going to get in the car and you're going to come back home and you're going to just do it and do it and do it and over and over again. Or you can look at every day as a gift from God. And your job is a gift from God. And the traffic, as you're sitting in traffic, you can look up and see the sun. And say, well, there's a gift from God. I can see the sun. I can breathe the air. My God has given me another day. Will they make a statue about me? No, they won't make a statue. Will anybody remember me? No, no one will remember me. Will they write books about me? No, they won't write books about me. But I don't try to live my life for that satisfaction. That, that's not where I'm going to find my satisfaction in that. It doesn't, it doesn't matter to me. Because Christ knows me. And I know Christ. And I find my joy in, in Christ. And I can live in this world for Christ. What the preacher does is he doesn't want you to pretend. He doesn't want you to ignore the vanity of this world or think that this world is more than what it is. The answer isn't despair. It's not cynicism. But to look at this life in the right way and have meaning and joy. But you won't find that meaning without God. Without God, Ecclesiastes 1. With God. With Christ. You have joy unspeakable and full of glory. So we cheated a little bit and we read the end. I spoiled it for you, but I don't care about spoilers. But that's the point. That's the point. You're not going to find satisfaction in this life, but you will find it in Christ. And the preacher is going to help us to see. He's going to help us to look at this life and put it in the right perspective. And it's not going to be dour, it's not going to be sad, it's not going to be depressing, but it'll help us to sort of laugh and rejoice in important things and not care so much about things that aren't that important to us in the long run.